Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. The Unfolding of the Natural Landscape, Chapter 1 of Olivia Saarinen's From Meteorite Impact to Constellation City, A Historical Geography of Greater Sudbury. The city of Greater Sudbury has within its boundaries some of the most complex geological features found anywhere in the world. Specifically, it is home to one of geology's greatest enigmas, the Sudbury structure of the Precambrian Shield. Any explanation of this unique formation's origin must take into account its setting and time and space. While the Sudbury structure represents a localized feature, its origins cannot be divorced from broader spatial associations linked to Northern Ontario. The three structural provinces of the Precambrian Shield and regional influences such as tectonic zones and fault lines. These murky associations occurred within the framework of other complicated events, stretching back for eons. Some two million years ago, the geological setting changed as the last Great Ice Age began. The advances and retreats associated with this glacial period dramatically altered Sudbury's physical appearance. Following the retreat of the last ice sheet about 10,000 years ago, the area underwent climatic and vegetative transitions, processes that have continued to the present day. The area's geological, glacial, climatic, and vegetative history has had a profound effect on Sudbury's economic raison d'etre, distribution of population, topographical setting, and environmental appearance. While geographers generally reject the principle that such environmental determinism should be considered the dominant factor shaping urban development, the case can be arguably made that Sudbury serves as an exception to this rule. The creation of the North American continent Since the formation of the Earth some 4,600 million years ago, Northern Ontario has been part of a geological odyssey of epic proportions. Over time, the molten Earth cooled and processes came into play that reshaped the appearance and nature of the Sudbury area. These processes included plate tectonics, continental drift, and the creation of continental blocks. At various times, the site that became Sudbury was even a maritime tropical environment. The cooling of the earth resulted in the formation of huge floating slabs of rocks on the surface, known as plates. While hard to conceptualize today, northern Ontario was part of no less than four major continents, Arctica, Nina Columbia, Rodinia, and Pangaea. Starting 2,500 million years ago, the original North American continent, known as Arctica, was created by smaller plates meshing together. The lower margins of Arctica later collided with another plate 1,900 million years ago to create a continent known as Nina-Columbia. Over 1,000 million years ago, Nina-Columbia stretched, broke, and grew into a larger supercontinent called Rodinia. Rodinia was subsequently torn apart around 550 million years ago. 
Then, 410 million years ago, Rodinia gradually became part of yet another supercontinent known as Pangaea. It was around this time that Africa and South America careened into eastern North America. Pangaea began to break up 225 million years ago, eventually fragmenting into the continents we know today. The Geology of Northern Ontario These events provide the backdrop for the contemporary geological setting of Northern Ontario. This part of the province is dominated by the Precambrian Shield, a huge landmass composed of old bedrock that dips towards Hudson Bay to the north and Lake Ontario to the south. The shield is geologically important as it contains locally mineralized strips of rocks running east to west known as greenstone belts, often as much as 100 kilometers wide. In the northern and southern reaches of Ontario, the shield is covered by younger sedimentary rocks that were deposited when shallow seas covered these areas. The shield rocks belong to the Precambrian era, a time span that began 4,600 million years ago and lasted until 543 million years ago. As illustrated in figure 1.2b, the rocks of northern Ontario can be divided into three structural provinces, Superior, Southern, and Grenville. All were subjected at one time or another to a lengthy period of mountain building or orogeny. On this map, the Sudbury structure appears as part of a zone situated between the Superior and Southern provinces. The Superior province, containing 450 significant mineral deposits, features rocks that were affected by a lengthy mountain building and fault phase some 2,500 million years ago. This was followed by a long period of erosion, which lowered the rock some 8 kilometers. The eroded material was moved southward by rivers and deposited in shallow water to form a wide belt of sedimentary rocks 480 kilometers long and up to 70 kilometers wide and 12 kilometers thick in the Sudbury area. These banded rocks can now be seen north of Highway 17 East near Coniston. Elsewhere, they form the prominent ridges of the Lacloche Mountains made famous by the Group of Seven. The southern province, which contains the bulk of the city of Greater Sudbury, extends northeast from Whitefish Falls to Lake Temascoming. It consists of rocks that were formed some 1,600 to 1,900 million years ago. Within this zone, a high mountain range comparable to the Himalayas today was formed in the Killarney area. Further south, the region underwent the Grenville mountain building phase about 1,000 to 1,300 million years ago, the last major geological event in the Sudbury region. The contact between the Grenville zones and the southern provinces is known as the Grenville Front. It constitutes one of the most visible elements of the geological skyline near Wanapate along Highway 17 East and Highway 69 South, around 2 kilometers south of Richard Lake. Other tectonic events and fault activities took place during this interval, indicating that the area may have represented the margin of a gigantic rift zone between converging crustal plates, one that extended into the mantle. It can thus be said that the Sudbury area has been shaped by geological forces of global magnitude, 
A better understanding of these forces has only developed since the 1960s when experts advanced new theories that led to considerable debate and controversy. A consequence was the involvement of new researchers, including NASA scientists. Table 1.1 gives a more detailed accounting of the geological history of the Sudbury region. As per geological convention, the timescale runs from the present to the past. The Sudbury Event The Sudbury Event brought the region into the world stage of geology. This term has been used to describe a phenomenon of gigantic proportions that occurred 1850 million years ago, the collision of two worlds and a violent release of energy that formed the Sudbury structure, which led to crustal intrusions of vast mineral deposits of nickel, copper, and precious metals. The event ushered in one of the most violent periods of explosive volcanic activities ever recorded in the rocks of the Earth's crusts. It was unique in that it constituted the first demonstrated case of impact-triggered volcanism, a process long proposed to be the origin of lunar features. The extraterrestrial impact came in the form of a huge meteorite that, in a millisecond, created 31,000 cubic kilometers of impact melt, six times the volume of Lakes Huron and Ontario combined, and 70% more melt than the melt at Chicxulub, Mexico. It transformed the local rocks into this Sudbury structure, a huge geological feature encompassing some 15,000 square kilometers of land. Of the 182 known impact structures on the surface of the Earth, it is the third largest by diameter, approximately 260 kilometers, and likely the fourth oldest. This momentous event remained in the shadows of scientific discovery until the publication of Bell's geological map in 1891, at which time the Sudbury area became the focal point of attention for international geology. Bell, who undertook a detailed mapping of the area between 1888 and 1890, was the first to portray the existence of an oval geological basin with elevated northern and southern ranges. Coleman later showed, in 1905 and 1913, that the basin was continuous and connected to a larger body of surrounding indigenous rock, which was later known by several names, such as the nickel-bearing eruptive, the Sudbury nickel eruptive, the nickel eruptive, more recently, it has become customary to call the surrounding belt the Sudbury Indigenous Complex, SIC. The brilliance of Coleman's maps at the time is shown by the fact that his placement of the rock types differs very little from present-day maps. Meanwhile, Barlow established that a close association existed between the nickel-copper ore deposits and the lowest sublayer of the SIC known as norite. Most geologists today favor the idea that the ores were introduced as crustal intrusions of magma, possibly modified by a later meteor impact. Since the discovery of the ores in 1883, geologists have paid a great deal of attention not only to the origin of the SIC itself, but also to a plethora of associated features. These include the actual geographical extent of the Sudbury structure, how the 
unusual rocks known as sabrebrecia, were formed, and the shape of the ore body underlying the structure. It was thought until the 1960s that these issues could be explained by the theory that the complex had a volcanic, endogenic origin. In two highly controversial landmark papers, however, Dice concluded in 1962 and 1964 that a meteorite impact was the only plausible origin for the Sudbury crater, the astrobleam. He correctly predicted that shatter cones, conical fracture surfaces with fanning stria up to three meters in length, a trademark of astrobleams, could be found in rock formations surrounding the basin. Since then, arguments both for and against this view have been the subject of numerous studies. During the 24th annual meeting of the Geological Association of Canada, held in Sudbury in 1971, a consensus emerged that support for the meteorite impact theory had grown. Most geologists went from believing a meteorite impact was possible to probable. While evidence for the newer theory is now almost overwhelming, there continues to be support for the belief in some form of volcanic involvement. This debate underscores the fact that the Sudbury area continues to be one of the world's greatest geological enigmas. Indeed, one author refers to this area as being the Gordian knot of the Canadian shield. Russell and Card have cautioned against the complete acceptance of all aspects of the meteorite impact theory, noting that there has been a tendency to ignore or force-fit certain aspects of Sudbury geology, which are not in exact harmony with the impact model. Before dealing with these extraterrestrial and volcanic theories in more detail, I present a brief review of the main features associated with the Sudbury structure, the SIC, Sudbury Basin, and the outer footwall zone. Components of the Sudbury structure. The Sudbury structure consists of three major components. One, the SIC. Two, the inner Sudbury basin, often referred to by locals as the valley. And three, an outer footwall zone of shattered cone and fragmented rocks. These spatial features are illustrated in figure 1.3a. The Sudbury structure rests on a great dome of granite rocks associated with the Superior Province. The structure can be thought of as a giant bathtub with the SIC forming the basin, the sedimentary rocks of the whitewater group filling its inner lining, and the broken material called breccia covering its outer lining. The SIC has an elliptical shape, 60 by 30 kilometers in size, and a surface width of approximately 2 to 5 kilometers. Its rims are known as the North, East, and South Ranges. The complex is layered, consisting of a lower portion known as norite and an upper one called micropegmatite. The base norite layer contains the majority of the ores associated with the Sudbury area. Its oval distribution is reflected on the surface through the circular patterns of mine sites encompassing Falconbridge on the west, Garson and Creighton on the south, and Lavac on the northeast. The micropegmatite layer on a geological map is easy to ascertain. Being less resistant to erosion than the norite zone, it has a lower elevation and is more deeply scoured. Thus, it serves as a natural repository for many lakes such as Fairbank, Whitewater, Whitson, 
Capriel, Joe, Nelson, Moose, and Windy. The Sudbury Basin within the SIC is occupied by rocks of the Whitewater Group. This grouping, named after a lake, is approximately 2,900 meters in thickness and consists of four formations which are, in ascending order, called the Onaping at the base, Vermilion, Onwatan, and Chelmsford at the top. They play host to a variety of small mineral occurrences whose origins are different from those of the SIC. The age of the whitewater rocks are thought to approximate that of the Sudbury event. Each of the formation associated with the whitewater group has added to the unique character of the Sudbury structure. The Basel Onaping formation has a thickness of some 1,400 meters and consists of fractured rock that was deposited very rapidly. Theories of how this formation came into being are contentious and critical to unraveling the origins of the Sudbury structure. While some continue to believe that the structure represents the product of explosive volcanism, others suggest that it is a remnant fallback of broken and melted rock blown out of the crater by meteorite impact, with perhaps some impact-induced volcanism. The Vermilion, a narrow formation with an average thickness of only 13.5 meters, and limited surface exposure hosts the zinc, copper, and lead deposits associated with some of the earliest mine sites, such as the Vermilion and Arrington. The Unwatton Formation is estimated to be anywhere from 600 to 1400 meters thick and consists of black carboniferous slate-like material originally deposited in a deep basin of stagnant water. The presence of carboniferous material is possible evidence that life existed there at one time. There was some early interest in these veins as a source of fuel. However, this hope faded as the material did not burn well due to its high ash content. The Chelmsford Formation, approximately 850 meters thick, consists of beds of sandstone laid down by water currents. It underlies much of the flat agricultural land found in the valley. This formation was folded after the Sudbury event to form synclines and anticlines that appear as bedrock ridges and lowlands scattered throughout the valley. The outer footwall zone of the Sudbury structure consists of Sudbury breccia, a fragmented rock characterized by deformational features that resulted from the Sudbury event. The footwall can be found 35 to 80 kilometers north and east of the SIC, and is about 9 to 40 kilometers wide to the south, where it abuts the Grenville Front. This belt is of economic significance as it hosts nickel, copper, and other mineral deposits. The occurrence of these fragments set in rock at the outer or margin of the Sudbury structure suggests that the diameter of the original impact crater was much larger, perhaps in the order of 200 kilometers. Numerous shatter cones can be found in this zone as far as 17 kilometers from this SIC. The ring exhibits shock features commonly associated with other impact sites, such as those found at the Vetterfort Ring in South Africa and the restructure near Norlingen, Bavaria in Germany. Origin of the Sudbury Structure There are two basic theories to explain the origin of the Sudbury structure and its ore deposits, a volcanic model and a meteorite impact model. The volcanic model. 
Geologists who adhere to the volcanic model, postulated since the late 1800s, consider the Sudbury structure to be either an intrusive sill, a ring dike with norite and micropagmatite layers as separate intrusions, or a lacolith, which is a funnel-shaped intrusion, see figure 1.4. At the time, experts believed that the only source that could produce the energy to form the Sudbury breccias had to be volcanic in origin. Between 1890 and the First World War, this model was based on the sill theory. The theory, supported by Bell in 1891 and Barlow in 1904-1907, was simple in conception. Magma had gradually worked its way up through the Earth's crust via a fault or fissure and spread it horizontally near the surface between the whitewater group of rocks and the Precambrian basement, where it then cooled, crystallized, and differentiated under the influence of gravity in situ to form the norite and micropegmatite layers. While Coleman was basically in agreement with this concept in 1905, he considered the SIC to be a sheet that had been folded into a lopolith, a saucer or spoon-shaped form. Since these concepts could not account for the fragmented character of the surrounding rock, and the amount of micropegmatite associated with the SIC, it was eventually replaced by other theories. In 1926, Themister endorsed the proposal Knight had made in 1917 that the Sudbury Basin was a caldera. Cast doubt on the principle of magmatic separation in situ and introduced the idea that the norite and micropegmatite layers were the result of two separate intrusions. This led Burroughs and Rickaby in 1929 to suggest that the elliptical outline of the SIC might reflect the former presence of a highly explosive ring of volcanoes around a sedimentary basin. Their idea was later pursued by Thompson and Williams in 1954, who, who posited that debris from this volcanic activity spewed through fissures as glowing avalanches, settling in the lower-lying areas to form the Onaping Formation. This formation was then covered with the shales of the Onwatan Formation, and the sandstones of the Chelmsford Formation, derived over eons of time from the erosion of volcanic fragments and subsequently deposited underwater. The major criticism of this concept centered on the fact that a volcanic eruption would not only have discharged brushier debris towards the center of the basin, but into the surrounding area as well. Thus, the ring dike theorists had difficulty explaining the absence of conglomerates outside the basin. In an effort to account for this anomaly, Thompson and Williams resurrected the Calderia Collapse Theory. In 1959, they suggested that the rapid discharge of more than 1,250 cubic kilometers of avalanche debris caused an immediate dropping of a great block in the basin, forming a deep sink of perhaps 1,000 meters. They postulated that magma intrusions then formed along the ring faults. Over time, the volcanic residue outside the Sudbury Basin eroded, while the Onaping Formation remained preserved within the basin itself. While the theory apparently gave the coup de grace to the myth of the Sudbury Lopolith, as late as 1978, Card still remained cautious, stating that it was too early to deduce the original shape of the SIC. 
in the final analysis, the majority of geologists today claim that the volcanic models fail to account for the tremendous score of source of heat required to produce the widespread fragmentation and shock effects found in the Sudbury area. As well, they assert that the volcanic proponents are focused mainly on the SIC without accounting for its unusual chemistry and have left the larger context of the greater Sudbury structure for others to define. The Meteorite Impact Theory Interest in the geology of the Sudbury area was given a dramatic boost in 1964 when Dietz, prior to even visiting the site, made public his astonishing proposition that the Sudbury structure was an astroblem whose formation was initiated by a large meteorite about four kilometers in size in middle Precambrian time. He suggested that a meteorite struck the earth at Sudbury, exploded, and excavated a shallow crater about 50 kilometers across and three and a half kilometers deep, shown in figure 1.4. Shock waves spread out and caused severe breakage in the rocks, giving rise to the Sudbury breccia and forming shatter cones in the footwall rocks surrounding the outer margin of the SIC for distances of 10 to 15 kilometers. Dietz interpreted the SIC as an impact melt sheet and the nickel, copper, and precious metal ores as extraterrestrial. While many aspects of his thesis are now widely accepted, his theories regarding the origin of the ores has few adherents. Until recently, most researchers supported the view that the ores of the SIC were emblazed emplaced by magma from the lower crust immediately following the impact. However, there has been increasing support for the concept that the SIC was produced not by internal melting process, but rather as an impact melt during the event itself. Newer studies give credence to the meteorite impact theory, citing, for instance, evidence of numerous shatter cones in the outer footwall rocks and the presence of shock metamorphism within the Sudbury Basin. Newer assessments suggest that the meteorite was 10 kilometers in diameter, roughly the size of Mount Everest, and may have penetrated the Earth to a depth of 10 to 15 kilometers. Estimates of the diameter of the Sudbury crater have also grown from 50 to 280 kilometers or more. Dietz's theory gained additional credence with the discovery that the Onaping Formation represented, in part, a fallback breccia, composed of material explosively excavated from the crater by the impact that was immediately redeposited. Assertions that the rocks and structural features associated with the Sudbury structure were consistent with an origin of meteorite impact also increased his theory's credibility. Support for this interpretation comes from researchers who have concluded that the impact event the emblazement of the SIC and the deposition of the Onaping Formation constituted geologically instantaneous events. Others have been more definitive, stating, for example, that the only improbable or rare event in this scenario is the large-scale impact, clearly the largest in Earth's history, for which we have a well-studied record. The magnitude of the ore deposits in themselves demands one rare event or phenomenon. In the same vein, Peridari and Morrison have asserted until it is demonstrated unequivocally that shock metamorphism can be caused by volcanic activity, 
the shock features will continue to be the criteria for identifying meteorite impact sites. During the 1980s and 1990s, more proof accumulated in favor of an extraterrestrial impact. Established in 1984 to initiate deep earth studies, Lithoprobe, the largest geoscientific research project ever undertaken in Canada, yielded in 1990 a three-dimensional view suggesting that the SIT is continuous beneath the Sudbury Basin and that there are no structures or bodies at that depth that would be expected for an endogenous feeder system or of magnetism. Other evidence came in 1994 when geologists discovered fullerenes or bully balls named after Buckminster Fuller, the inventor of the geodesic dome, in carbonaceous material and the brushes associated with the Onaping formation. The fullerenes are pure carbon molecules containing helium arranged like a soccer ball cage. The current thinking is that they originated from a meteorite previously associated with a red giant or carbon star nearing the end of its life. In a 2005 study, Addison et al. concluded that ejected material associated with the Sudbury impact event could be found in an underground layer 650 kilometers to the northwest of Sudbury near Thunder Bay and 875 kilometers to the west near Hibbing, Minnesota. There was even the suggestion the material from Sudbury could have been deposited as far east as southern Greenland. In 2009, two researchers made the controversial proposition that Sudbury's continental shelf location and its submergence under or nearness to an existing ocean at the time of impact, see figure 1.1, set into motion a giant tsunami that altered the ocean's ecosystem, thereby marking the beginning of life processes on our planet. This concept of the Sudbury event having an oceanic impact will undoubtedly spur further studies in this direction. Card has remained cautionary with respect to the impact theory, stating that the Sudbury structure must also be viewed as an integral part of its regional setting in space and time. He points out that both the location and shape of the Sudbury structure are closely related to tectonic features including the junction of three structural provinces and two main fault systems, all lying within a possibly major Precambrian rift. Thus, the SIC is only one of a series of similar intrusions that could have occurred in this rift system. While in general agreement with the meteorite impact theory, Roussel too has concluded that the meteorite impact was only one event in a complicated geological setting that simply accentuated ongoing ore forming processes and magnetism in Sudbury. Whatever the origin, Spears has suggested that the formation of the SIC was extremely rapid and constituted one of the most violent periods of explosive volcanic activity ever recorded in the rocks of the Earth's crust. Now is a good time to take a small break, get a glass of water, shake your sillies out, and remember, on the drive to Sudbury, don't miss the exit, or you're going to Sault Ste. Marie. Post-Sudbury events, mountains, erosions, and the Wanapati crater. During the interval between the Sudbury event and the end of the Precambrian era, a complex series of crustal activities took place. There was a significant mountain building activity in the Grenville province, south and east of Sudbury, 
on at least five different occasions. There were other disturbances as well, resulting in a landscape with northeast trending structures. Rocks of the Whitewater Group in the center of the Sudbury Basin were folded. The origin shape of the Sudbury structure became tilted and more oval in response to thrust from the south, including the final closure associated with the Grenville Mountain building phase. Following the Precambrian era, a long period of erosion ensued. During this lengthy interval, which lasted until the start of a continental glaciation, the mountainous terrain of the Precambrian Shield and the Sudbury structure was reduced in elevation to its present level. Unlike the Manitoulin Island area, the Sudbury area was not affected by the deposition of sedimentary rocks during the Paleozoic or Mesozoic eras. The uniqueness of the Sudbury structure was given an added dimension in 1972 when geologists revealed that another meteorite had hit Lake Wanamapiti 37 million years ago. The original crater was estimated to be 8.5 kilometers across. While the meteorite had some influence on the shape of the eastern range of the SIC, its overall impact remains uncertain. If the Sudbury event can be interpreted as the result of a meteorite, then the sudbury wanapitiya crater relationship must be considered one of the rarest combinations of impact events recorded on Earth in the last 3 billion years. Laurentide Ice Sheet While the Sudbury event was the most important one that shaped the local physical environment, the influence of the last ice age cannot be understated. 20,000 years ago, the Sudbury area was covered by an ice sheet 1 to 2 kilometers thick. Part of a larger continental glacier, this ice sheet covered all of Ontario and extended into the northern United States. This, however, was not the first time that Sudbury was glaciated. Great ice sheets covered parts of Ontario on several occasions during the Precambrian era some 2.4 billion years ago. The most recent ice advance occurred in the Quaternary period, the youngest period of the Earth's history. The Quaternary began about 1.8 million years ago, when the world cooled and large parts of North America and Europe were intimately covered by continental ice sheets. The Pleistocene epoch of the Quaternary, or the so-called Great Ice Age, began some 1 million years ago, during which time continental-scale ice sheets expanded and retreated. The Wisconsin episode took place from 115,000 to 10,000 years ago. In the ensuing period, the Sudbury area was deglaciated and huge lakes formed that covered the entire area northward from Lake Huron and Georgian Bay up to the north rim of the SIC. These glacial lakes eventually retreated to form the present-day Great Lakes. The earliest evidence related to local glaciation dates back to 1894, when abandoned shoreline features were found along the Canadian Pacific Railway, the CPR, mainline near Cartier. In 1901, interesting glacial deposits was piqued by the discovery of placer gold deposits along the Vermilion River. While sporadic studies were undertaken later, it was not until the late 1960s the quaternary geologists, including A.N. Boissonneau, G.J. Burwasser, P.J. Barnett, and A.F. Bash began detailed mapping and analysis on a regional scale. 
Since then, a more comprehensive view of the region's glacial history has emerged. Glacial Advance and Retreat The last glacial advance left a spectacular record of erosion and deposition. Evidence of its erosional effects is everywhere. By means of downward pressure and the assistance of rock fragments carried by the ice, the forward movement of the ice sheet sculptured the landscape through abrasion. From tiny etchings on bedrock surfaces to large, streamlined bedrock forms. The Sudbury area is distinctive in that it has some of the best sculptured forms seen in Ontario. Among the abrasional impacts are polished rock surfaces and stria, long linear scratches that determine the direction of the ice movement. Powerful subglacial meltwater discharges likewise had a major effect on creating bedrock sculpted forms. The trend of stria and grooves to the south and southwest, paralleling the oval shape of the Sudbury structure, indicates that the local topography influenced the movement of glacial ice. One striking example of this effect can be found at Bailey's Corner, southwest of the Sudbury Airport, where the glacial, glacially sculpted bedrock is smooth and polished on the advance, the northeast side, and quarried and plucked on the downflow, the southwest side. The flattening impact of the ice, however, is best viewed from a distance. While the topography of the Sudbury area appears rugged at ground level, the skyline effect known as peneplation on the south and north rims of the SIC becomes evident when viewed from any height, such as from the Parker Building on the Laurentian University campus or in the southwest bypass. It has been estimated that the lowering effect of glacial advance was in the order of tens of meters. The advancing ice sheet was also responsible for depositing debris by direct placement at its base or along its frontal margins during a temporary stop phase. The direct lodgement process involved the deposition of unsorted sediment known as till or ground moraine. While absent or deeply buried in the valley, Till deposits can readily be found elsewhere, generally in thickness of less than one meter over bedrock. Not very productive for agricultural purposes, these areas were nonetheless favored by Finnish settlers who acquired farms in places such as Wanup, Long Lake, Whitefish, and Beaver Lake. While these thinly mantled areas are frequently associated with bedrock exposures, an offsetting factor has been their ability to produce blueberry patches. These poor till deposits form a sharp contrast to the more extensive till plains found just north of Toronto, where they are deeper and devoid of rock features. A different form of till deposit, known as an end or recessional moraine, was laid down north and east of the valley, where the retreating ice sheet came to a temporary halt, and a large accumulation of flow till developed along its frontal margins. This resulted in the formation of a moraine ridge some 5 to 10 meters high. This ice marginal feature is part of a larger northeastern Ontario formation that runs from Batchawana Bay on Lake Superior through Cartier and Capriel on the north range to the southern end of Lake Temascoming. The large boulders, known as erratics, that were carried by the ice sheet to the Sudbury area from other areas attest to the former presence of continental glaciers. These erratics litter the surface of the region and are particularly noticeable in the Onaping Falls area.
stratified deposits and post-glacial lakes. Within the valley and along the northern and eastern rim of the SIC, glacial deposits of a different kind can be found. Unlike the insorted till deposits discussed above, these consist of sediments reflecting the influence of meltwater as the ice sheet started to retreat around 10,500 years ago. As the deglaciation process occurred during a relatively short period of time, approximately 500 years, many deposits did not fully develop. These stratified materials, known as glacio-fluvial deposits, vary according to their method of deposition. That is, whether they were laid down on, within, or under the glacier, known as ice contact deposits. In contrast to those laid down beyond the ice margin, referred to as outwash deposits. The valley acted like a huge trap that captured the incoming sediments carried by glacial meltwater streams, such as the Onaping River, Sand Cherry Creek, and the Nelson, Rapid, and Vermilion Rivers. Finer grain sediments were dispersed and deposited in the Sudbury area under glacial Lake Algonquin, the precursor of the present-day Great Lakes. Stratified sediments formed under or at the edge of the ice sheet constitute an important feature of the quaternary deposits found in the area. Many of these deposits are readily observable because they now serve as locations for companies providing sand and gravel, mine backfill, and crushed and screened products. Several types of these layer deposits exist. The largest consists of a delta running southwest of Wanapati Lake to Falconbridge and Garson, forming part of the Sudbury Airport glacio-fluvial system. Laid down along the receding ice margin, it is a major landscape element. The northern part of the system was laid down in an ice wall channel that may have attained a maximum width of 6 kilometers. The sand and gravel delta was formed by meltwater discharge that flowed from the ice sheet into a glacial lake. It created a large plateau that now serves as the site of the Sudbury Airport and several sand and gravel quarries. The plateau's edge can readily be seen on the west side of the airport as a sharp terrace. Up to 55 meters of sorted material has been discovered above the bedrock in the vicinity of the airport. Associated with this feature are a complex of 25 kettle lakes and an esker that runs southwest from Bolands Bay toward the Falcon Bridge and Garson town sites. This complex was created when large blocks of ice became separated from the main ice sheet. As these blocks were later covered and insulated by sands and gravels, they remained long after the main ice sheet left. When they eventually melted, they left large holes, kettles, now occupied by ponds. With their deep terraces and depth sometimes in excess of 45 meters, these kettles represent some of the most distinctive landforms in the area. Other ice marginal deposits, known as outwash deposits and deltas, occur within all of the major south and east flowing river systems associated with the north and east ranges. A number of these deposits have as many as five or six terraces linked to the declining levels of glacial Lake Algonquin. The Dowling Delta, which occupies some 8 to 10 square kilometers, is, is an excellent example of this feature. Others include the Capriel and Suez Deltas, situated northeast of Hantmer. 
Another system of eskers and outwash deposits extended southwest from the center of Lavac Township to beyond Windy Lake. The retreat of the last ice sheet occurs in phases, controlled by the location of the receding ice margin and the opening of outlets in the North Bay area. The melting ice sheet resulted in the formation of Glacial Lake Algonquin, which at the time extended beyond the boundaries of today's Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. The Sudbury Basin remained totally underwater until 9,500 years ago. Following the uncovering of an outlet in the Matawa area, Lake Algonquin disappeared, leaving its wake the stratified plain that currently occupies the center of the valley. The nature of these deposits is closely related to the topography of the valley, which slopes gently in elevation to the southwest from about 300 to 260 meters over a distance of about 39 kilometers. The lake left sandy deposits behind in the shallower areas associated with Chelmsford and Hanmer and laid down clays in the deeper areas to the south and southeast. These sediments are up to 125 meters thick. The presence of these glacial costrine deposits, along with the groundwater resources, now known as the Valley East Well System, encouraged an extensive agriculture economy to flourish among the Francophone population in the valley throughout the past century. Outside of the valley, smaller pockets of lacustrine clays were deposited in several areas, such as those found southeast of the Falcon Bridge town site, in parts of the former city of Sudbury, and in the low-lying stretches of land adjacent to Long, McFarland, and Richards Lake. Post-glacial landscape. While the main elements of the Sudbury landscape were fashioned by geological and glacial forces, other influences subsequently came into play which modified the existing landscape. New drainage patterns and lake systems developed. Glacial and post-glacial deposits were transformed into soils of varying characters. Climate impacted the soil to create vegetative communities. Over thousands of years, these elements combined with one another to create a distinctive landscape that provided the physical and economic setting for settlement of the area by Aboriginal cultures. The waterway system. A waterway system consisting of rivers, lakes, and swampy zones emerged in the post-glacial era as an integral aspect of the natural environment. Widely used as a mode of transport by the Aboriginal population, explorers, surveyors, and the first white settlers, parts of the system assumed an important economic role, serving as the highway for log drives in the forest industry, electrical power generation for the mining industry, and local municipalities, and a source of water for companies, businesses, and homes. After the First World War, rivers and lakes became attractive for residential and cottage purposes, a trend that has continued to the present day. More recently, the system has become an important asset to the quality of life for the local citizenry, not only for its scenic and ecological value, but also for outdoor recreational uses such as swimming, fishing, ice skating, and boating. Indeed, the use of these waterways has developed so much that Sudbury is increasingly viewed as a city of lakes rather than a city of rocks. Due to the prevailing south-facing topography, the Sudbury area lies entirely within the Georgian Bay Lake Huron watershed. The regional drainage pattern is dominated 
by two main river systems, the French and Spanish. Geologically controlled by faults, the flow of water reflects a northeast-southwest orientation. Examples of this phenomenon are visible in Vermilion and Long Lakes. Within the main watershed, 25 sub-watershed units exist. The French River system drains the eastern part of the city through the Wanapati subsystem. The Wanapati River, with its main channel some 210 kilometers long, flows from the north into Lake Wanapati and to the south of the French River. The Spanish River drains the rest of the municipality via the Vermilion. Five subdivisions of this system exist. Vermilion River, Onaping River, Whitson River, Junction Creek, and Levy Creek. The Vermilion River, the largest in the area, has a length of approximately 246 kilometers. It enters the basin near Capriol and proceeds from there westward to the confluence of the Onaping River before broadening to form Vermilion Lake. Along the Vermilion River's course, alluvial deposits have formed intricate meanders, winding shapes that contrast sharply with the more rugged river systems found outside the basin. Both Joe and Nelson lakes flow into this system. The river eventually flows into Cusk Lake and from there to Espanola and the confluence with the Spanish River that flows into the north channel of Georgian Bay. The Onaping subsystem drains the northwest sector of the basin, including Windy Lake. The physical control of the north rim of the SIC exerted on this river has resulted in powerful stream gradients before it meets the Vermilion River. The north rim provides the setting for the A.Y. Jackson Lookout and a scenic view of High Falls as it cascades 55 meters into the valley. Whitson River drains much of the Central Valley as well as Whitson and Garson Lakes. Junction and Nolan Creeks, because of their close association with residential settlement, have been modified more by subdivision activity and highway construction than by geology and topography. Levy Creek connects Whitewater Lake with the Vermilion River, as many of the drainage areas in the valley and downtown Sudbury are low-lying and highly flood-prone, damage from flooding has been a major occurrence of Greater Sudbury on at least 46 occasions between 1890 and 1979. A wide profusion of lakes within the municipality is significant in that it gives the city a natural environment unrivaled elsewhere. In fact, Greater Sudbury has one of the highest concentrations of urban lakes of any city in Canada. There are over 330 lakes greater than 10 hectares and 47 lakes over 100 hectares in size within its boundaries. Of the city's total surface area, 12.2% is covered by water and another 4.3% by wetlands for a total of 601 square kilometers. Lake Wanapati has the distinction of being the largest city-contained lake in the world at 13,254 hectares in size. Lake Ramsey, situated in the heart of the municipality, offers numerous opportunities for recreational and sporting activities, including summer and winter fishing. 
The attractiveness of regional lakes for residential living is shown by the fact that in 2003, approximately 7,000 people, or 4% of the city's population, lived on a lake. Numerous wetlands, wholly or partially covered with cattails, algae, and wet and spongy soils, dot the rural landscape. These areas are an important element in Sudbury's ecosystem, serving as excellent filters for absorbing metals and sulfur. In the shallower areas, small depressions with low water tables have accumulated inorganic and organic detritus, yielding bogs, swamps, and marshes often less than one meter deep. Larger wetlands featuring grassy types of vegetation have emerged in many channels linking the dispersed lake system of the region. These sites all have considerable aesthetic appeal and add to the diversity of the environment. Climate and changing ecosystems. In the post-glacial period, changing climates and ecosystems emerged along with differing forms of wildlife and vegetation. Temperatures then were about 10 degrees cooler than modern conditions. Gradually, the climate came to feature a high degree of seasonality with some of the steepest north-south temperature gradients in Canada. Located in the heart of North American landmass, the climate evolved into relatively long and severe winters and short temperate summers. The climate of the Sudbury area is thus comparable to that found in southern Sweden, which is also buffeted by Arctic and tropical air masses. Compared to the prairie provinces, there is some modification of the climate due to the Great Lakes in the west and south and Hudson Bay to the north. Another aspect of the climate is the presence of four distinct seasons along with differing temperatures and precipitation types. As evidenced by the flow pattern of superstack emissions, these air masses generate prevailing wind directions from the north and southwest. Precipitation in the form of rain and snow is uniformly distributed throughout the year, while the annual frost-free period is in excess of 110 days. The growing season is considerably longer, lasting six months, beginning around April 25th and ending about October 25th. The Sudbury area, therefore, has one of the longest growing periods in northern Ontario. Since the region is located along some of the major storm tracks of North America, the passage of high and low pressure systems produces wide variations in the day-to-day -day weather. This is especially true in summer when warm, humid air masses from the south alternate with cooler and drier air from the north, resulting in two or three days of fine weather, followed by warmer and more humid weather, often with changeable winds and rain. While the local climate fails to reflect the superlatives of many other parts of Canada, it does have the distinction of recording Canada's eighth largest tornado on August 20, 1970 an event that left five people dead, 200 injured, 750 homeless, and caused some $10 million in damage. Many local residents would be surprised to learn that the well-known places-related almanac has given the Sudbury area the dubious honor of the lowest ranking in bad weather lists made up of 354 American and Canadian metropolitan centers. In the past few decades, however, the Sudbury climate has moderated, taking on some of the characteristics associated with southern Ontario. Some climate experts 
have estimated that Sudbury's average temperature since the 1970s has warmed by 1 degree Celsius. Some comfort for future generations can be garnered from the fact that by the next century, global warming is expected to give the Sudbury area the same weather that the Cleveland area now experiences. The climatic warming that brought about the retreat of the Laurentide Ice Sheet was followed by a lengthy period of revegetation. As the climate warmed, the boreal forest, consisting of spruce, poplar, and later jack pine, white birch, and alder, was replaced around 7,700 years ago by a more mixed species associated with the Great Lakes St. Lawrence forest zone, such as white pine, hemlock, and beech. This forest complex has persisted to the present. The white pine stumps now found in many locales hint at the huge size of the pine forest in parts of the region. In contrast to areas found along Georgian Bay and parts of southern Ontario, Aboriginal agriculture had little impact on the forest cover. The first surveyors of the Sudbury area found a surface cover that showed evidence of previous forest fires, followed by a later successful regrowth of birches and poplars. During the period of early settlement, the vegetative cover in the area was sufficient to provide material for logging, railway construction, and roast beds for the mining industry. Later, sulfur dioxide emissions from smelters had a great influence on the forest cover. Wildfires caused by railway engines and fires deliberately set by prospectors to reveal a rock cover also affected the forest. One positive outcome of these events was the flourishing of blueberries. In many areas, fair-sized trees survived the fires, as evidenced by the naming of the first Sudbury Catholic parish as St. Anne of the Pines. This alteration of the landscape that took place throughout the first half of the 20th century continued after the Second World War, but in a new fashion when reclamation programs were initiated, first by the mining companies and later by the regional municipality of Sudbury. Given the short period that has passed in geological terms since the retreat of the ice sheet, there has been little time for the development of mature soils. Other factors that have influenced soil development include the type of parent material, the climate, and the nature of the vegetative cover. The dominant types of soil include those formed from 1. Till, 2. Lacustrine materials, the loams clays, 3. Fine sand outwash, sand, 4. Coarse and medium outwash, sands and gravels, and 5. Organic soils. Soils derived from till are typical of the agricultural areas found in the scattered stretches of land running west to east from Beaver Lake to Wanup. Clays and loams can be found in the western part of the valley. While these are good soils, they are often poorly drained with a high organic content. In the middle and eastern parts of the valley, better quality loam soil prevail. Since the parent materials were derived from Precambrian shield bedrock, the soils are acidic with a low nutrient status. The cool, humid climate has likewise encouraged the formation of soils known as podsols. In these soils, elements such as calcium, magnesium, iron, and aluminum have been leached from the upper layers and deposited below. The presence of mixed conifer deciduous forest cover has enhanced the process of podsolization, 
In some areas, other soil types exist, such as the drained sandy soils that have accumulated in pockets of exposed rock knobs and ridges, in saturated soils, and those that have formed on rock outcrops where the organic matter shows less decomposition. The soils of the area have been influenced by human factors as well, such as logging, which has promoted soil erosion, and smelting activities that have increased copper and nickel levels. Compared to southern Ontario, the soil resource space is limited. According to the Canadian Land Inventory, the former regional municipality of Sudbury had 41,902 hectares of land in the 1970s designated as having class 2, 3, or 4 soils. These designations mean the soils have moderate to severe limitations that restrict the range of crops and require farmers to use conservation practices. The limitations of these soils include low fertility, high acidity or low pH, and low water holding capacity. Of the 41,902 hectare total, 55% was associated with the valley and most of the remainder with the former municipality of Walden. While the soils in the valley are concentrated, those found in the outer districts are dispersed. With the addition of Dill and Cleland townships to the new municipality in 2001, there was some augmentation of the soil resource base. Fauna in the area includes fish, marsh birds, and waterfowl, small large mammals, woodland birds, and amphibians and reptiles. The numerous lakes in the municipality support an abundance of aquatic life and fish species such as perch, lake trout, brook trout, rainbow trout, yellow pickerel or walleye, northern pike, yellow perch, smallmouth and largemouth bass, and whitefish. Their presence has served as a major tourist and recreation attraction, a phenomenon that started with Lake Panache as a destination for American cottagers and tourist camps after the First World War. While the fish habitats of some lakes have been impacted by the smelting operations of the mining companies, recent efforts to restore them to their original state have met with some success. The many rivers and the presence of large wetlands support numerous species of marsh birds and waterfowls. While the presence of waterfowl in the area has historically been considered only fair to poor, recent changes due to the regreening of the environment and projects by Ducks Unlimited have improved the situation. Ducks, geese, teal, herons, gulls, loons, sandpipers, and terns are now common. The mixed environment of forests, lakes, and wetlands provide habitat for many small mammals, woodland birds, and amphibians and reptiles. At least 47 mammal species are known to exist locally. Among them are herbivores, white-tailed deer, moose, rabbits, and hares, omnivores, bears, raccoons, striped skunks, red foxes, carnivores, minks, otters, martens, weasels, and fishers, rodents, beavers, muskrats, chipmunks, squirrels, mice, and rats, as well as bats, moles, and shrews. Open woodlands have attracted ruffed grouse, partridge, and other types of woodland birds, including hawks, owls, swallows, woodpeckers, flycatchers, nuthatches, whippoorwills, crows, starlings, and sparrows. While amphibians and reptiles are more limited, frogs, toads, turtles, and small snakes can be found dispersed throughout the wetlands. 
in recent years, there has been evidence of new species migrating from southern Ontario. This natural environment sets the framework for the chapters to follow. It will be shown time and time again that an appreciation of this natural environment is vital to understanding the how and why of Greater Sudbury's economic and socio-cultural development since permanent settlement began in the late 1800s. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.